in our last episode. The war between the Berger and Shelton gangs raged on, with Charlie Berger desperate to get his hands on the Shelton's prized tank. In October, the body of William Burnett High Pockets McQuay was discovered, shot with no culprit in sight. Just after, Ward Casey Jones turned up dead in the Saline River. Berger arranged Jones's funeral. <laughs> Night of Another Sort Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger by Gary Deneal Chapter 18 Death in Drag The press made much of these closely spaced killings and the shooting up and burning of Berger's county line roadhouses between Johnston City and West Frankfurt on the early morning of October 28th. Located on the highway just south of the Franklin-Williamson County line, this trio of houses, connected by a hallway, was approached in the pre-dawn hours by perhaps a dozen men with guns. They began firing into the bar room of the first building and into the dance hall of the third. The structure sandwiched between the two, its function unspecified, was likewise shelled. Several volleys later, the shooting faded away, and someone shouted that anyone still capable of doing so was to step forth with hands raised. Not surprisingly, no response was forthcoming, but as it turned out, the houses had been abandoned some days earlier. Then came the pouring of gasoline and the inevitable striking of matches. A small shack of a dwelling that housed the lighting plant was also set afire. At the time, it was felt that the Sheltons must have been responsible. Not so, according to a fellow who witnessed the shooting. Despite the more than half a century between the 1920s and the late 1970s, he felt that to reveal the names of the raiders would serve no useful purpose, and might even get someone hurt. But he did say that it was a vigilante action, carried out by local residents, and that the Sheltons had no part in it. Was the Burger Gang causing any trouble for the neighbors? To the contrary, he said. They were always courteous, but their presence was a strain on the community and a drawing card for enemy gangsters. The Burger Gang, meanwhile, concentrated on the elimination of their rivals. Top priority was given to Carl Shelton, who was designated number one. Because of his rough and tumble ways, Brother Bernie was ranked number two. That left number three to Earl, a quote, big fat slob, in Art Newman's estimation. This numerical rating was used by the gang during telephone conversations to confuse any eavesdropping operator. To erase number one, the four top men of the gang, Berger, Newman, Wooten, and Ritter, talked one of Carl's former girlfriends into registering at a hotel in East St. Louis. From there, she called Carl, who promised to look her up. When Carl somehow learned that Berger and some of his men were stationed nearby, he failed to appear. A second opportunity came a short time later, when Newman chanced to see Carl and some of his pals at a drugstore in East St. Louis. 
Some of the fellows had rifles, however, a situation that prompted Art to speed back to his hotel room and fetch his machine gun. Alas, when he returned, the men were gone. It was all very discouraging. Other attempts were made with the same results, but Art and Charlie and Freddy and Connie were practical fellows at heart. If we can't polish off number one, they reasoned, then try for number two. If he is not available at the moment, aim for number three. Here they were in luck. For that particular moment, Earl Shelton happened to be recuperating in St. Mary's Hospital in East St. Louis. Accordingly, the deadly duo of Newman and Wooten set about reducing by one the number of their enemies. Both being small in stature, Art and Freddy hit upon the clever scheme of disguising themselves as women. Since he had to wait in the car, the rouged and powdered Newman left off wearing women's shoes, but otherwise was dressed in a style befitting any middle-aged matron lucky enough to be wearing a small fur cap retailing for $1,200. Freddy, who was designated to go inside, outdid his glamorous partner. As Newman told the reporters from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, Freddy, he was dressed a lot classier. He'd a Hudson Seal fur coat, a black turban, silk dress, and women's shoes and stockings. He only wears a number four shoe. He had a good clean shave, and he was painted up so you'd never recognize him. And you remember, Art? Interrupted Freddy. I wore a fur neck piece, or a choker, or whatever you call it. But I had to take it off, because I figured there might be some shooting to do, and I knew if my rod got tingled in that thing, I'd probably kill myself. We had a lot of fun getting dressed up that night. Art pulled up in front of the hospital and out minced Freddy. Using his softest voice, the diminutive gangster asked the sister at the desk where one might find a Mr. Earl Shelton. When she actually told him, Freddy nearly fell out of his makeup. That big boob was booked there under his own name, he recalled incredulously. Clearly, Big Earl was not ranked third for nothing. So much for the reconnaissance. Now for the dirty work. Since nothing is quite so lethal as a razor-sharp hunting knife drawn firmly across one's jugular vein, it was agreed that in this manner Earl was to make his exit. To speed him on his way, they had engaged the services of a hired killer, who happened to be their old pal Rado Milich. The following night their plan was to go into effect, but that same night St. Louis detectives nabbed Art, Freddy, Bess Newman, and the hired killer himself. Millich was promptly returned to Menard for breaking parole. Freddy was fined $100 for carrying concealed weapons, and the Newmans were held as suspects. Finding no charge to pin on Newman, the St. Louis Police Department wired Williamson County officials. They were told that they had a warrant charging him with the killing of Harry Walker and Everett Smith. Realizing that it would not do to be sent back to Williamson County at this point, the Sheltons were likely to overpower his guards and do worse to him. The wily gambler intimated to post office inspectors that he had inside information as to who pulled the 1925 Collinsville mail robbery. As luck would have it, Berger had already confided to reporters that the Sheltons had indeed committed the robbery. A few days later, Newman was escorted to Springfield, where he testified before a federal grand jury, then in special session, naming the Sheltons as the perpetrators of that particular crime. Indictments resulted. A free man, Newman then went to Chicago, and from there slipped back into Williamson County, where the dragon known as Financial Woe was beginning to peer over his particular horizon. With his joints closed, Berger too was in a pinch. His army of boys and older, hardened criminals had to be fed. 
He later said that his meat bill alone ran to between $130 and $140 a month. In normal times, these and other expenses could have been written off as overhead, but normal times had faded into the recent past. Newman estimated that he personally lost $25,000 in cold cash. The greater amount that would have been his, had not the gambling all but dried up, was, if not astronomical, at least too painful to contemplate. Still, the overriding concern was preventing rival gangsters from pumping daylight into one's vitals. That required luck and discipline. Luck, being the province of the angels, Berger concentrated on the discipline. Part of the shock troops, composed of older, more tested men, patrolled the highways and back roads in search of the Sheltons and their cohorts. In the daytime, while the veterans slept, the younger men guarded shady rest. As one of the organization's top four, Freddie Wooten was in an ideal position to report on the daily schedule of the shock troops. Matinee from 2 to 5 every afternoon. Target practice. Evening performances. Road patrols with roadhouses to be histed and searched for Shelton gangsters, and maybe fights to be found. Our beauty sleep usually began just around sunrise. Apparently, Leo Simmons forgot to read the newspapers prior to the night he drove from Carbondale to Golconda and decided to stop by the cabin for a glass or two of hospitality. Instead, he found a frightened bartender, as well as two rough-looking characters, both of whom shoved up against him so hard he could not move. Indicating he had a gun, one of the men motioned Simmons to get in the car and be gone. He did leave, but so did the other two men. They followed him all the way to Harrisburg, and even a short distance down Route 34. Simmons said he never went back to Shady Rest again. Only a kid at the time, Logan Cox had vivid memories of the gangsters in their fortress. I was a member of a quartet that was formed at our school at Crab Orchard, and we'd been invited to sing at a pie supper at Carrier Mills. Driving east past Shady Rest, we saw some men with guns in front of Shady Rest close to the building. As we passed by both ways, they dropped to their knees and followed our car with their guns pointed. Somewhat of a military man throughout his career as a bootlegger and gangster, Berger tried to enforce his edicts on his men, a motley crew by most accounts, as he earlier had on the roadhouse operators. In both cases, he was unsuccessful, despite Wooten's schedule as given previously, largely because he was dealing with people who were refugees from society, individualists with a bent toward criminality. An example of one of the gang's unmilitary behavior was experienced by Willard St. John, a frequent customer at the barbecue stand. My brother and I helped build the Illinois Central Railroad east of Shady Rest. Hot and weary in our work clothes and clodhoppers, we would stop at the barbecue stand after work to wet our whistles with a cold glass or two of beer. Now, that particular afternoon, Art Newman was behind the counter. I don't know what was the matter with Art, but his eyes seemed glassy, like he was on dope or drunk or something. Anyway, there I was drinking my beer when Newman spoke up. You can dance, can't you? He said. Nah, I replied. I can't dance. Yeah, I think you can, he said. That son of a gun pulled out a sawed-off shotgun from under the counter and laid it 
right in my face. Like I say, I don't know what was wrong with Art, but I saw he meant business, and I went to dancing. Every time I'd let up a little, he'd just raise that gun. I figure I was at it, I'll say five minutes or more. Well, as luck would have it, Charlie Berger came in about that time. Boy, I'll tell you what, he ate Art Newman up. Oh, I was just having some fun out of him, Art said. That's a hell of a poor way of having fun, Berger replied. After that, Charlie went to the cash register and emptied his pockets of watches and everything. I don't know where he got them or whether someone had been on a raid or, or what. But the next thing I heard was, Come here a minute, St. John. There was an old icebox in the back, and it was a long watermelon. <laughs> when Charlie cut it, that big heart just rolled out. He sliced me a piece of that heart. But all the time, he was cussing Art Newman. I thought he even ran him off down there at the cabin where they had the women and everything. Well, well, Charlie got so mad, I was afraid he was going to shoot him. Some time later, St. John stopped again at the barbecue stand, only to find a boy crying. Since they were alone, he asked the lad, who was only about 16 or 17, what the problem was. After saying he was in one heck of a shape, the young fellow told a chilling tale. Out of Missouri, he had gone as a harvest hand shucking corn for farmers. Harvest done and on his way home, he managed to stop by Berger's place, and finding the atmosphere congenial, he stayed. One day, though, he made the mistake of telling Berger he was finally ready to leave. After leading him to a wooded area, Charlie sat the boy down and began to talk to him. His voice not so different from a father's when reasoning with a son, Berger said he was going to do something he very much hated. When the youngster asked what that might be, the middle-aged gangster looked him full in the face and said quietly, Shoot your head off. He quickly explained that the lad knew too much, had seen too much ever to leave alive. If he tried to escape, Berger added, he would be followed and found. Though the boy cried and begged Berger to let him go, promising never to say a word about what he had seen, the answer remained the same. Another tale bearing the whiff of the surreal concerns the farmer who heard a knock on his door around midnight. The stranger at the door said his automobile was stuck in the mud near a certain graveyard and asked if the farmer would pull him out. The man hitched up his team. After some effort, the deed was accomplished, following which Charlie Berger paid the man $100. He also warned him never to tell a soul. The next day, the sleepy farmer went to the cemetery and found what seemed to be fresh digging in an old gravesite. The visit at midnight and the discovery afterwards he kept to himself until shortly before his own death many years later, or so the story goes. Next time, the airplane circled higher, possibly to be out of range of any gunfire from below. From an altitude of about 400 feet, three bundles were dropped, 